Hello, and welcome back to the Come, Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I'm a pastor here in Payson, Utah at Orchard Hills Bible Church. Thanks for joining me today to talk about the book of Zechariah. We are almost through the Old Testament for 2022. Obviously, we didn't hit every verse. We didn't even hit every book. But following along with the uh, curriculum schedule for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, going through the Old Testament for the Come, Follow Me Sunday School curriculum. In case you haven't seen it, and in case you're watching on video, here's my little schedule I've been following. Printed this off from some someone who made this on Pinterest way back in January, and I've just been using it all year. And here we are now for the week of December 5th through the 11th, covering Haggai or Haggai, however you want to pronounce it, and Zechariah. And for Zechariah, it says chapters 1 through 3 and then 7 through 14. So the whole book, except for chapters 4 to 6, which is kind of strange. But today we're just going to be looking at uh, Zechariah 14. That's what we want to look at today. As we consider how God is going to display His goodness, how uh, God is going to display His sovereignty and his rulership over all things in the end through the person of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of Zechariah 14, and uh, there's just a lot of fun things in there to see that, well, I, I say fun. It'll be fun for people who are reigning with him. It won't be fun for his foes, and we will see that momentarily. But the uh, in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah was a prophet in Judah. He was calling the Israelites to believe in the prophecies of God, to listen to the prophecies of God, to take hold of the truth of God, that they may be made right with him, that they may have a good relationship with him on the basis of his salvation. Because uh, Israel, as you know, I'm sure, Israel had this problem of not listening to prophets, therefore not listening to God himself. So uh, Zechariah is calling them to take heed, listen to God. And this is right before the silent period enters into Israel. You may know that after the prophet Malachi, who we'll look at next week, there was a 400-year silent period leading up to John the Baptist, who's a voice crying in the wilderness. So Zechariah is one of these last prophets speaking to Israel before the basically the coming of Jesus Christ. And he's calling the Israelites to take heed of God's word And he's also giving them this big, grand picture of where all this is heading, which makes sense as the prophets are becoming fewer and fewer, and as we're approaching this time of hundreds of years of silence. I mean, 400 years is such a long time. America is, what, 200, 1776, so we're 200 and almost 50 years old. We're we're still like 150 years shy of 400 years. That's a long, silent period. And so it makes sense that God would give them more of these big, grand pictures for the generations to come to consider where all this is headed and what they should be listening or looking for and and believing as they listen to the prophets. So in in Zechariah, really the last three chapters are just really key when you want to understand what God is going to do with the world, starting in chapter 12. And uh, in chapter 12, we get this amazing statement where... God says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. So speaking of the Jewish people who repent, 
They will look upon the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was pierced, wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. Of course, he was nailed to the cross. They will look upon him that they pierced, and they will mourn for him as people mourn for a a child who has died, is what the text says. That's an amazing statement of what's going to happen with Israel in the future. That is not something that's happened yet. That is something that is yet future. In chapter 13 of Zechariah, the second to last chapter, God shares that he's going to take two-thirds of Israel and destroy them in the end. They're going to be destroyed. And the third part, the third of three parts, will be uh, restored, passed through the fire, refined, and restored to him in covenant relationship with him. That hasn't happened yet either, obviously. Two-thirds of Israel being cut off and a third being saved and restored. That is yet future even today in the year 2022. So uh, amazing prophecies about these these things that God is going to do. And uh, we have a whole bunch of that in chapter 14, which is where we'll be today. And I just want to start at the beginning, Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move forward, or toward rather, move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Okay, we'll just stop right there. A lot going on. Well, Israel, uh, Judah, has suffered under the hand of many enemies. They've had their uh, a lot taken from them. Their, their spoil has been taken from them is where this uh, passage starts. And they just had, they've had a lot of strife. I mean, that's Israel's history from essentially the moment they were formed. They have been a nation that has dealt with a lot of strife. Well, there's coming a day when God is going to come, the Lord himself, and he is going to deal with Israel's enemies. Now, I already mentioned how in chapter 13, there's detail of how he deals with Israel. He's going to deal with them too. Two-thirds of them are going to be cut off. They will die. And a third will be restored. Well, he's also going to address Israel's enemies. And when he comes, it says that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That was verse 4, I believe. Yeah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Now, this is talking about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is human. Uh, The Son of God took on flesh when he came for the first advent, it is, of course, Christmas season, so we can use that word advent, and everyone knows what we mean right now. In his first advent, Jesus was a man. He uh, became a man, I should say. Philippians chapter 2, though he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality of God with God a thing to be grasped, 
or to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He, he took on flesh and lived a life here on earth as a man. When he resurrected, he retained his human body. He is still human, yet he's been glorified. He has ascended into heaven, and that human body uh, is in a glorified absolutely glorified state, the same state that Christians will be in when Christians are resurrected in the future, the, the same type of human existence. So so Jesus is still God. He, he's always been God, eternally, past and future. Jesus is the Son of God. However, in his incarnation, he took on a human body, and he has retained that human body. And Zechariah is here being used of God to tell us that in the end, that human body of Jesus is going to return and stand on the Mount of Olives with actual physical feet on an actual mountain. This is, you know, a a very well-known mountain, the Mount of Olives. That's actually where Jesus ascended to heaven from. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, the angels uh, tell the disciples that he's going to return in the same way that that he left. He's going to return to the Mount of Olives. He preached at the Mount of Olives. Uh, you, maybe you've heard of the Olivet Discourse. That's Matthew 24 and 25. He, he preached on the Mount of Olives. He went there alone, and he wept there at the Mount of Olives. A lot happened in Jesus' first coming at the Mount of Olives, and here there's an amazing event at his second coming. He returns, and he stands on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives is split. Why is the Mount of Olives split? Well, the text tells us what I just read. So that verse 5, you, this is talking about Jews, the physical seed of Abraham, who is going to be saved in that day, a third of them, so that you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel, this place that we don't know where it is today, uh, but it'll be made clear then, and they will flee and be kept safe from persecution, they'll be kept safe from battle, because the Lord has saved this portion of, of Israel, and they will be protected by him, which is a, an amazing thought. This uh, mountain creates a valley. This is called the Valley of My Mountain, the Lord says here. And perhaps that's in reference to Joel 3, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, where he's going to judge all the Gentile nations. And you can go back and listen to my lesson on that if you need to be refreshed on what that's all about or, or if you're curious as to what that means. But uh that could be that same valley. We, we don't know for sure. So that's what's going to happen at Jesus' second coming. He's going to come stand on the Mount of Olives. It'll be split. A third of the Israelites will be kept safe, and their enemies will be destroyed. All right, you tracking? I hope so. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. All right. So uh, from Jesus's coming and this splitting of the Mount of Olives in two and all the things that are happening here, from all of that is coming this time of fertility and fruition in the land that uh, Things will change in the sky. There will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It's a unique day known to the Lord. It's neither day nor night. Okay, so that's going to be very unique. And also in that day, there will be living waters flowing out of Jerusalem. So Jesus is returning to the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem. That's where he's going to reign. We're going to read about that in a moment. 
But these living waters are going to flow out of Jerusalem and provide a special time of fertility. Uh, we see that in Isaiah in particular, Isaiah 27 and 35. But uh, just amazing ecosystem type things going on, geographical type things. And, and there's more geographical stuff that's going to take place. Let's pick it back up in verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, in his name, the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. All right, let's stop right there. So at this time, the Lord will be king. That's Jesus Christ, who has returned, who has split the Mount of Olives, who has defeated Israel's enemies. He will be king over all the earth. He will be the only one, verse 9 says, in his name, the only one. Amazing. And here's that other geographical change I was talking about. The land will be changed into a plain, and it gives these cities uh, or these areas where the, the land will be changed. It'll be just like flattened all around, yet Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site, it says. So there will be a prominence given to Jerusalem, not just by the king being there, but by geography changing, where Jerusalem is very clearly going to be up and above everything else. Jerusalem is obviously the the prime city where stuff's going down, and uh, it's a very key aspect to the Lord's reign at this time. And people will live in Jerusalem, it says. That last verse I read, people will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. So there's guaranteed safety for those living in Jerusalem. Absolute, total protection, there will no longer be a curse during this time. Amazing, amazing. Well, let's just keep reading. Verse 12. Now, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. Ooh. So this is actually going back to talk about how Jesus is going to deal with those enemies of Israel at his coming. So we've actually taken a little bit of a step back now in the prophecy to revisit for a moment what's going to happen to Israel's enemies when they're struck down by the Lord Jesus at his second coming. Verse 13, it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted up against the hand of another. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver garments and garments in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. So again, revisiting that, that battle that's going to take place when that valley is made, when the Lord returns and Israel's enemies are destroyed. Israel's actually going to participate in battle, and their enemies will be just rotten. They'll rot away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. Wow. And there will be a plague even on their horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the cattle. So a pretty comprehensive plague that will wipe out Israel's enemies. Okay, now again, after that is done, now we're going back to the idea of 
reigning in Jerusalem and what it'll look like for the Lord Jesus to reign in his kingdom. Let's keep reading. Verse 16, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. All right, so what's that about? Well, after Israel's enemies are destroyed and Jerusalem is raised up prominent, there's a great plain uh, of a flattening of everything else, and Jerusalem is up and prominent. Now, during this time of the Lord's reigning as king over all the earth, all the nations, not just the Jews, but all the nations are expected to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, year after year. You can read more about that in the Old Testament. Now, this doesn't mean that there's going to be a a reestablishment of the Old Testament like there was with Moses. However, there are some elements from that time, Israel under Moses. Some of those elements will be replicated to some degree during this future period where the Lord is reigning, where people are celebrating in Jerusalem with the Jews this Feast of Booths, a Jewish feast. All the nations are expected to go, and if they don't go, there's actually going to be a curse where they're not going to get rain. So so what an amazing time where it's different because there's been all these geographical changes that have taken place, and the Lord Jesus is physically present and reigning over the, all the earth from the capital city, Jerusalem. Yet at the same time, people are like farming and stuff and still need rain. They need water. They need all these things. And and they can sin against Jesus by not going up to celebrate the feast, and there's a consequence that's given. So, so this clearly isn't heaven, right? What, what we're reading here isn't the, the permanent heavenly existence where there is no sin and there is no retribution for things done wrong because nothing is done that's wrong. That's not what's going on here. But this also clearly isn't right now because we're not going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And if you want to say that that's allegorical to mean something else, well then... You can, I don't know what you're going to make that say. Seems to me that it's pretty straightforward. It's not an allegory. But this is an actual period of time where these actual events are taking place by actual nations under an actual, physical, explicit rulership of the Messiah King, Jesus. All right, you still tracking with me? Let's, let's, finish, let's finish the chapter. We don't have very many verses left. Verses 20 and 21. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. So uh, just a further note on that day, that's the language that's being used here, this time of the Messiah's kingdom, that there will be inscriptions, holy to the Lord, uh, written on the bells of the horses. Uh, The cooking pots 
in the Lord's house will be like bowls before the altar. That's interesting. Every cooking pot, it says in verse 21, in all of Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord. And those who sacrifice, it says, will come and take of those cooking pots and boil in them. So that means there will be sacrifices during this time too. So this is a a special time where sacrifices are made and uh, they're done in celebration of the Lord because he's right there. It's not like they're they're doing it waiting for the Lord or as a foreshadowing of the Lord. They're doing it in celebration of the Lord because he's there. And there will no longer be a Canaanite. It says uh, all of Israel's enemies will be completely wiped out. So, wow, 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 wow. What a what a scene we just covered there in uh, Zechariah 14. I hope that gives you a pretty expansive view of what the Lord is doing in this in this earth, what he's doing with his creation and how he's bringing it to a, a time of culmination and consummation here. Well, um, there's a passage in the New Testament I want to tie into this as we seek to land the plane a little bit. I just mentioned a, a couple moments ago that this is not talking about the current time. This isn't like some sort of allegory or spiritualized way of saying anything about the present age. This obviously isn't heaven either. This isn't the new earth. This isn't the time of, uh, you know, our eternal existence in the new earth. There are too many elements that disagree with, with that time timeline. So there's something in between the current time and the new earth, and that is this rulership of the Messiah as king over all the earth. Now, there is an aspect in which he is king now. Jesus is king of his church. He's building his church, and he is king now. But he's not reigning physically from Jerusalem like we just read about in Zechariah 14. That part comes later. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we actually get that from the Apostle Paul. I mean, there are other places we can go to as well, like Revelation 20, talking about the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ. But for now, let's uh, let's check out 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm switching from the New American Standard Bible 95, which is my custom to, is, is to use that Bible. That's what I'm always using in this series. But I'm switching to the English Standard Version because I like the way it reads a little bit better. Very similar translations of the Bible, just a little bit different. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Amen. Christ has been resurrected. For as by a man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Okay, this is where we're getting the, the sequence. This is the order of resurrections, verse 23. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
All right, a little bit confusing wording probably, especially if you're just listening to this. It's like I don't, I wasn't tracking all the way. Well, let's uh, back up. Talking about the order of resurrections in verse 23. First resurrection that serves as the model for the following resurrections is Christ. Christ, the first fruits. He was raised from the dead, never to die again. He ascended into heaven. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, that's the next resurrection, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Well, how much time is between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of those who belong to him at his coming? So far, we're coming up on 2,000 years, right? Long time. But that's the next resurrection event we're looking for. At the coming of Christ, those who belong to him will be resurrected. Then number three verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So at the coming of Christ, that's the second event listed, you have those who belong to him being resurrected. And then that begins this time period when he reigns and he puts all his enemies in subjection under his feet. He destroys all of his enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that's the end. And at the end, he hands that kingdom over to the Father. That's the kingdom we've been reading about in Zechariah 14. So at his coming, those who belong to him are raised from the dead. The saints are raised from the dead, and they reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20 talks about this. The dead come to life, and they reign with him for a thousand years. That's his kingdom. And in that kingdom, he's the perfect king, He's exercising authority, ruling with a rod of iron, correcting all wrongs, like the Egyptians who don't celebrate the Feast of Booze. They get a discipline in the kingdom. All this stuff is taking place while he reigns. And then comes the end, and he hands the kingdom over to the Father, and he himself is in subjection to the Father. And the great kingdom of God program is now at its final culmination, where all things are are fallen into place. Now, just because Jesus is in subjection to the Father, that doesn't mean he ceases to reign. In Revelation, it tells us that he will reign forever and ever. That's Revelation 5. And so Jesus still reigns. However, he reigns in a different sense. He's no longer, uh, it's no longer the Messiah's kingdom, like we see in Zechariah 14 and other places. It's no longer, uh, and we even see in 1 Corinthians 15, where he is reigning and putting all of his enemies under his feet as the Father is making that happen. But now all of that has been completed, and he hands the kingdom over to the Father, and this is the kingdom of God, and Jesus, of course, has a special reign in the kingdom of God that will last eternally. So that is, uh, that, that's just a really big picture view of what's going on in Zechariah 14 and how that fits into the grand timeline of God's program. Now I want to finish with a quick note on this. Uh, We just talked about, I just talked about, not we, you weren't here talking with me, but I was just talking about this resurrection that takes place at the second coming of Christ. Do you know if you will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ to reign with him in his kingdom? How, How can you know that? Well, you can know for certain if that includes you on the basis of what you have done with the gospel of Jesus. And I know that many of you listening to this may identify as Christians, but perhaps there's an element of the gospel message that 
you've gotten incorrect. And it's it's a vital thing because we're talking about the gospel here. This is this is absolutely vital. But consider the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God of the universe, the Son of God. He has come down and he has dwelt among men, living a perfect life, dying in a sinner's place, in the place of all sinners, taking the punishment they deserved, a substitutionary atonement. And then he rose from the dead three days later. That if we believe in what he has done by faith, recognizing this is the grace of God, this offer of salvation, if we, by grace, through faith, receive Jesus' work on our behalf, we are made righteous with God once for all on the basis of believing in what Jesus has done, and so we are saved. Now, if you mess up any, any parts of that message, you've, you've lost the gospel. If you don't believe Jesus is the one true God, that's not the gospel anymore. He's just like you and me. You and me can't save you and me. Creation cannot save creation. The creator has to save creation. If you don't believe that our sin is worthy of death and eternal punishment, you've lost the gospel. Why did Jesus have to go through what he went through? It's because sin is that bad. And you have that sin, just as I do and everyone else. If you don't believe that he died on the cross for sin, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. If you don't believe that he did that, you've lost the gospel. If you don't believe he physically rose again three days later, you've lost the gospel. And if you don't believe that we are made right with God by faith alone, that we receive our salvation at the moment of faith, that we're declared innocent at the moment of faith, that we are positionally exalted by God in a way that no one can ever reverse or take away or diminish, you've lost the gospel. That is the gospel message, that though we are weak, rebellious, wicked sinners by nature, God the Son stepped into this place, taking on human flesh, living the life we could never live, dying the death we deserved, rising from the dead, proving that he is who he said he was, that if we believe in his person and work, if we trust totally in what he has done, we can be made right with God once for all. That's the good news of the gospel. And you can be assured not only that you'll have eternal security, protection, joy, peace because of what God has done and that he keeps you in his hand. But you can also know for certain that you will be resurrected at his coming to reign with him in his kingdom. That's pretty cool, isn't it? All right. Thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate you listening and considering this important message of the Bible that Jesus is king, king of kings, Lord of lords. I look forward to seeing that one day with my own eyes, Jesus reigning from Jerusalem. What a, what a glorious day that will be. Well, join me next week as we finish the series by looking at Malachi. See you then.